first started. Um, and that the faith of those few were so powerful that the Ephesians rioted in the streets to oust the church. And so, I want us to remember that. that though we are few, if we are faithful, God will upend the world and bring them to Himself through faithful men and faithful women. And so let's remain true. Let's remain faithful. Let's have hope that God will bring in the tidal waves of people to the faith. Um, let's read together again from Ephesians chapter 2, this great passage, the first uh, ten verses. Um, this should be a... Whether you have it fully memorized or not is not the point, but this should be kind of just ringing in your head as you read Scripture. This is one of the good lenses to put on when you read the Bible. Um, what, what are things pointing to? What are things about? This is, this is it. This is what they're about. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's ask God for help this morning. Father, your word is true and it's eternally good. We pray that it would be helpful for us this morning by the power of your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We've went through chapter 1 of Ephesians, which talked a lot about the predestining love of God, the fact that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And now in chapter 2, there's this idea that we have talked about a couple of different times of being dead in our trespasses. And we've talked about different aspects of that. But this morning, I just want to talk about the basic idea of deadness and what it means to be made alive together with Christ and why that is the linchpin of the Christian life. It's the thing on which everything else hinges in Christianity personally for individuals. If you're dead, you have no life in Christ but if you're alive, you do. And so this thing in the middle that takes us from death to life is the linchpin. It's the thing that matters. And the mechanism by which that happens, we have no idea of. Um, how, how does a dead man walk? How does a dead man speak? How does a dead man live? How does a dead man made alive? I don't know. But we're given a lot of scripture and words about how it happens, the means by which it happens. And so we're going to look through some of that this morning. This is in a 
if you wanted to put it in like a theological context, there's something Latin. Again, I'd like to give you words if you want to really sound smart around people. Um, ordo salutis is the Latin. So if you really want to like impress those like three people, and then I don't know what you'll do after that, but you can really impress somebody like, you know, the ordo salutis. Uh, the order of salutis means the order of salvation. It's just a way of thinking about how God logically saves people. So there, there's a logical progression in the way which God saves. And so we've already sort of touched on the big starting point, and that's election, predestination. In order for God to save us now, he predestined us then. So predestination, election, precedes basically everything in the order of salvation. And then, at the moment of salvation, two, two things are basically happening simultaneously. One is we are rebirthed, regenerated, made new, and we have faith and repentance. They happen simultaneously, right? So, if you are a Christian, if you're born again, you have faith in that moment, at that, at that moment. There's no, you, became, you become born again, and then two months later you have faith. No, you are born again and you have faith in time at the same instant. But logically, what is the progression? How does it work? Well, logically what has to happen is something uh, has to happen to you in order to have faith because the reality of people outside of Christ, of you before Christ, is death. And this is something that is very difficult for us to understand just how dead we were outside of Christ. And so this morning I'm not going to talk about the sins and the trespasses and those sorts of things that give evidence to our death. I'm going to try to give you the spiritual reality of death. That this is not a weakness that needs to be overcome, that it's not a strength issue that you have to get stronger for. It's not even something, you know, oftentimes you'll hear different ways of explaining the gospel and somebody will say it's like a life, you know, the rings that you throw out into the ocean to rescue somebody. Somebody, Christ throws you the like rescue ring and you cling on and he pulls you in. That's not dead, right? If you're still floating on the top of the ocean surface able to cling on to a thing, you're alive, you're not dead. More akin to what Scripture talks about regarding the death that you are in before Christ is you are a pile of bones on the bottom of the ocean floor and then you're walking around on land the next moment with full flesh and bones and a heart beating. That there is no interim. There is no point at which you're sort of floating and then you reach out, but you are made alive. And then because you are alive, you start walking in faith, believing. And those happen instantaneously. They happen at the same moment. But logically, what has to happen first is you have to be made alive. You can't breathe in faith if you don't have lungs to breathe. Scripture gives us several different instances of how this happens. Um, but I'm going to focus on a couple in the book of Ezekiel. So we're going to spend a little bit of time back in one of the prophets. Ezekiel was during the time of the exile. So um, the people had been taken out of Jerusalem or in Babylon. 
And we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about this particular verse, but I just find it fascinating. Ezekiel 36, the first thing that Ezekiel is told to preach to is not the people. Ezekiel 36 says, And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say to the mountains, Hear the word of the Lord. And then he preaches to the deserted cities and the valleys and the hills and the mountains. That Ezekiel wasn't just preaching to dead people. He was preaching to the earth, something that cannot be spiritually alive because it has no soul. This is the impossibility that we're facing. This is the sort of reality that we're in. But in Ezekiel chapter 37, we hear this. The hand of the Lord was upon me, Ezekiel. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. And it was full of bones. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. It's just, a, it's just mounds of dry bones. Dead bones. Dry bones doesn't... I mean, yes, they didn't have liquid on them. But dry bones is the idea of cleanness. They weren't decomposing corpses. They had been out so long that all their corpses had been picked clean. And it was just skeletons. There was nothing alive. There was nothing even showing that things had been alive other than the skeletons of the people. And God said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O oh Lord God, you know. Now think about, think about the faith of Ezekiel at this moment. He's walking around in this vision in a valley full of bones. God says, can these bones live? What would we say? If we're honest. Would we go, only you know, Lord? No. We would say something like, no. <laughs> I mean, bones can't live, especially dead, dry bones. These aren't like new corpses. These are like decades-old bones. They cannot live. We would be very logical about it. We would have no faith in the moment. This is the reality that we're facing all the time, is that the, the, there's a fine line between having faith for what God can do and being a nut, right? If you were out with me this afternoon and we found an old deer head, just the skeleton, right? And I said, hey, what do you say that... What do you think about that deer getting up and running around here in about two minutes? You would think I had lost my mind. That I'd become an imbecile. That I needed to be institutionalized. The faith of God that he gives to his people is that impossible. And I don't think we think about it very often. It is that improbable. It cannot be done. And yet, Ezekiel has some sort of faith. Oh, Lord God, you know if these bones can get up and run around. Do we have even an inkling of that sort of faith? About the dry bones around us? The reality is, many times we tend to think of our own Christian lives and our own Christian experiences 
as we were weak, which is a scriptural word at the right time. When you were weak, Christ saved you. But here, it's death. You were dead. You were dead, and you were made alive. You were dry bones, and you walk around now. But we tend to think of our Christian experience as being something more like the evidence was presented. It seemed logical to believe it. So I became a Christian. And so all I have to do to get someone to become a Christian is just give them the logical evidence for what they need to believe. They will see the logic of it, and they will believe. But the problem is, it's illogical to be dead and then alive. And this is the great truth of the foundation of our faith, right? Jesus Christ, we just confessed it in the confession. It's inscripturated many times. He was dead. Not sleeping. Not weak. Not mostly dead. Not able to be resurrected. They didn't go in there with a, what's this called, defibrillator. You know, we got one of those hanging on the wall out here. He wasn't laying on the ground and we were like, oh, strap the things up and hit the button. He was dead for days and nights in the tomb. And then he was not. That's wild. That's not logical. That's impossible. Faith is the difference. Faith is what makes the difference. Oh, Lord God, you know. Then God said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. O Lord God, you know. Okay, if I know. Here, Ezekiel, here's your task. Preach to bones. You preach to the, you preach to the mountains. Now preach to bones. This is the impossibility of what actually happens in Christ. You were dead, and then you were made alive together with Christ Jesus. Death to life. Impossible. Not logical. No amount of figuring it out for yourself could have gotten you there because you had no thing to figure it out with. You were dead. So, I, Ezekiel, prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, O son of man, and say to the breath, Do we understand how utterly insane this is? Now, this is a vision, but it's a vision telling the spiritual reality of how dead men come to life. Prophesy to the breath and say to the breath, 
Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost, and we are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, I will do it, declares the Lord. How do dead men live? Dead men live by hearing the word of the Lord with no ears. They didn't have ears on those bones. He spoke to dead men. And by speaking to dead men and saying, hear this, they heard it, even though they couldn't hear, even though they had no means to hear it. He made them alive. You remember the passing of Lazarus, so he dies. His sister sent word, hey, Jesus, our brother Lazarus is very sick. Come. And Jesus doesn't go because he knows that he's going to die and that later he will be resurrected. And so Jesus waits several days and then finally returns, and Lazarus has been dead for four days. And when he says, take me to the tomb, open the door, they say, Lord, don't open the tomb. It's been four days. It's going to stink. It's going to smell bad. Like, don't. Like, we've already, we've already anointed the body. We've closed it up. That's the end. We're done here. Jesus says, no, we're not done. Open the tomb. Lazarus, come out. Lazarus was dead. He was not partially dead, mostly dead, kind of dead, sleeping. He was actually dead. Had been dead for four days. His ears could not do what was necessary to hear. Right? So we know how the ears work. Right? So sound waves come in, rattle your eardrum, hit these three little bones that kick around, send a little signal up your ear nerve up into your brain it says Joe's talking we know that Lazarus had no brain waves no electricity flowing through that head of his that nerve did not fire those bones did not move that eardrum didn't maybe the eardrum might have quivered because it's just a piece of skin but those little bones didn't move that that nerve didn't fire and then all of a sudden dead man alive walks out of the tomb this is the sort of death that we're talking about Ezekiel chapter 36 gives two other examples of how this works this is Verse 22 of Ezekiel 36. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. Oop, I'm in the wrong spot. Sorry. 
Verse 25, um, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. There is this moment in conversion, the beginning of conversion, that is called a new birth or the new heart, or circumcision, or any number of other words God uses in his word. And it's this moment of dead to life, just new heart, old heart. You, you're dead, now you're alive. And not only does he put a new heart in you, not only does he bring you to life, put flesh on your bones, the second piece, he gives the spirit to allow you to obey and to walk in these things. I don't know a ton about organ transplants. Um, so if I say anything wrong, Anna, you can correct me later. Don't embarrass me now, please. Um, organ transplants are different than something like a hip, right? So a hip is a bone. I mean, I think technically a hip's a bone is an organ of some sort. But we're talking about like hearts, lungs, kidneys, those sorts of organs. Very difficult to put a new one inside you. It's very difficult. We've been doing it, I don't know, 60, 70 years successfully and more successfully as we go. You have to do all kinds of tests to figure out how to put a new organ in somebody. Blood type, all sorts of things related to that. And then after the surgery happens, right, you've taken out the old heart, you've put in the new heart. You've sewed up the wound. It doesn't end there. You have to keep going back to the doctor. You've got to keep taking pills and medicine to make sure that heart doesn't get rejected by your body. You've got to do all kinds of things the rest of your life to maintain that new organ. It, it's not a one-and-done deal. You're on an operating table. You get off it. You do some recovery. Now you're good. Daily medication for the rest of your life. No more smoking. No more drinking. No more this. No more that. Can't do this. Must do this. And if you don't do this and you start doing that, you're going to die. And quicker, because it's, a, it's not your own heart. It'll die faster, because it's not really part of you. This is similar to the spiritual reality that happens in a heart transplant, the dead to alive. Even then, we are dependent on the Spirit to keep us. That if we did not have the Spirit to keep us till the end... And this is what Ephesians 1 says. We have the Spirit as our guarantee until the very end. He gets us there. If we got a new heart and God said, Okay, I've given you the new organ. Go walk. We would inevitably still die because we need help. We would not take our medicine. We would not change our habits we would walk in the same old ways that we used to walk and we would still die again. But the Spirit is given to us who keeps us. Who says, no, 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 no. Right, you got to take your medicine. You got to read the Word. You got to pray. No, 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 no. You got to do this, not that. No, 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 no. Don't do that. Do this. The Spirit is at work within those who love God to do these things. We have not just been made alive with Christ. We have been given the gift of the Spirit when we are born again to keep us. 
And so these things, these things together are the new birth. We're going to look at one more passage this morning. This is in John chapter 3. John chapter 3 is super famous because it has that most famous of verses, John 3.16. Before John 3.16, while Jesus is still talking to this man named Nicodemus, he's talking about this thing that he's referring to as the new birth. And Jesus answered Nicodemus and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So does with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We have to preach so that bones will come alive. Dead people will live. It's what Ezekiel did. It's what Romans 10 says. The Word is what makes dead people alive. It's the only means. It's the only resurrecting power in the world is the Word of God. It worked on Lazarus. worked on the dry bones. It's how it worked in us. The Word of God raised us up by the power of the Spirit in a mysterious way that we cannot fully explain. God makes dead people alive. Who? When? Where? How? I don't know. We know a lot about the wind these days. We've probably forgotten a lot about the wind. But we know a ton. We, we store tons and tons and tons of data in computers that run models all the time. And so things happen. I don't, is it hurricane season yet? I don't know. Is it? All right, so hurricane season. Everybody's getting ready down in the south coastlands for hurricane season. They're, they know that in the coming few months, that's when all the hurricanes come because of the way currents work and winds and blah, 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 and things I don't understand. Here's what I do understand, though. They never have any clue what's going to happen with a hurricane. They've got mountains of data on hurricanes. Incredible amounts of data on things like tornadoes. They still have no idea where the wind will blow. They can get pretty close sometimes, but then all of a sudden they'll, you'll hear the news broadcast, right? So the night before they'll say, All right, uh, Charlotte. Is it Charlotte that's on the coast? Uh, wherever the coastline is of South Carolina, North Carolina. The Carolinas are going to have to buckle up tonight, batten down the hatches, get all the plywood up. It's coming. It's going to hit at 10 o'clock tonight. And then we get up the next morning because we don't live down there. And the news says, at 9.30 last night, the, the hurricane was 20 minutes from the coast, and then it veered off and didn't touch land. How? Why? We don't know. Let's try to analyze it all. Okay, now we know why that one turned. Next hurricane comes. All right, it has the same thing. I don't think it's going to hit. I don't think it's going to hit. Don't worry. It's going to veer out. It's got the same profile as this hurricane from 1974. 
And then what does that hurricane do? It doubles in size and hits everything and blows things apart. And they go, okay, hold on, hold on. No idea. Decades and decades and decades and decades of studying the weather. Millennia of studying the weather. We still don't know. Because God is in control of where and when the wind blows. Always. The Spirit is the same. Preaching is the means by which dead people come to life. Will it be today? Will it be these people? No idea. Will it be tomorrow and those people? Who's to say? Will it be one person over ten years? Will it be a thousand people in a week? Couldn't tell you. It looks like it's going to be this, and then it ends up something completely different. God does mysterious things. Mysterious things in the way he works. Jonathan Edwards, a preacher very different from me in many ways. Jonathan Edwards, so the story goes, was this sort of a man. I don't have anything up here to read, but... And behold, a man came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, Just monotone. Supposedly he never looked up from his notes. Just not a guy that we would think, well, that, that guy has got it. Whatever, whatever it is. But that guy... Monotone, not looking up. Preached a sermon that you have heard of called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I don't know if it's still taught in public school, but even when I was in public school, it was required reading in like 10th grade English because it is one of the most important things that happened on our continent since we became a continent of English-speaking people. 1735, I think, 1730. He goes and he preaches this sermon. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And he reads it. And the Spirit moves so powerfully on those people at that time from that guy that he cannot finish his sermon because of the shrieking and the moans of the people in the crowd overcome with the guilt of their sin and wanting to be saved. And it begins something called the Great Awakening. Thousands upon thousands saved. If you had to put money on whose mouth would be used to awaken the dead bones of 1730s New England, it would not be Jonathan Edwards. It might be a friend of Jonathan Edwards. It would be a man with similar theology to Jonathan Edwards. But it wouldn't be that guy. It might have been his grandpa, Solomon Stoddard, who was a great orator. It wouldn't be Jonathan Edwards. Because after all, if you don't have presence in the pulpit, God can't use you. It's just not true. God blows the Spirit where He wants, when He wants, and it doesn't matter the circumstance. God is the author of life, and He will give it when and where He pleases. So for us now, a couple of things. One, 
This should strengthen your faith. You had nothing. Nothing. You were dead. You were dry bones on the ground in a valley without hope, without life. And then all of a sudden, you were walking around on the land singing the praises of God. One minute dead, the next minute alive. One minute not faith, next minute in faith. And God gave you His Spirit as a guarantee. Right? That's Ephesians chapter 1. It's Ezekiel 36. The Spirit was given to you on that moment to keep you. So if you have ever been alive, made awakened to the gospel, it takes faith. God has not just given you a new heart and let you go down your path. He gave you a spirit so that you will walk and keep walking and he will continue the good work he began in you till the very end. The second thing it should do for you is realize that you have no idea when and where God will use you to awaken people from the dead. Either you personally or our church. No idea. You can't predict it. You cannot find it. You cannot settle on it. We don't know. It might be one person over the next 10 years. It might be a thousand people next week. And you go, how would it be a thousand people next week, Joe? I don't know. I'm just saying, we don't determine it. We are not the great planners. The wind. We might think we get it, and then all of a sudden that storm shifts and we lose it all. God is the author of life, not us. And He is determined whom He will save and when He will save them. The only thing we are absolutely sure of it is by the Word of God that men are saved. By the Word of God. The final thing related to that, we'll call that 2B. Talked about this a little bit in Sunday school. I've been talking about it with several of you over the last couple of months. The constant refrain from the world outside of Christ is, I don't believe in your God. I do not believe your Bible. Don't push your religion on me. This has always been true that people have said this. It's becoming the loud mantra of everyone outside of Christ right now. I don't believe in your God. I don't believe in your Bible. Therefore, I don't care. My friends, that is the whole point. They don't believe because they're dead. They don't believe because they're not alive. If they were alive, they would believe. But as it stands, they're not alive, which means they're dead. Which means the only means to get them from dead state to alive state is to say to them, I know you don't believe this. Hear it anyway. This is the truth anyway. It doesn't matter that you don't believe it. That's the whole point. You don't believe it. You can tell me you don't believe it. I already know it. I know you don't believe it because you're not a Christian. If you believed it, you would be a Christian and you would be saying to other people, believe in this. Don't fall for the lie that you should not use Scripture on people who are not Christian. That is what you are supposed to do. It is the only means by which they can be saved. You can't logic a man into the heavenly kingdoms. You present the word of God, and God, if he so chooses, sweeps like the wind, 
takes a man from dead to life. Just like that. That is our hope. So be, be glad that it's not up to you. Be happy that it's up to God. We would fail miserably at our jobs. But as it stands, we basically only have one. Faithfully declare the words of God. To one another and to everyone else. And God will save, save whom he wills. Let's pray quickly and then we're going to take communion together. Father, we are very